For more than 50 years, communitarians, community seekers, and cooperative culture activists have been sharing their stories and helpful community resources in Communities Magazine. Building from the ground up, Communities Magazine's Spring 2023 issue shares stories and guidance about natural building, starting new groups from scratch, and developing communities both ecologically and socially. You can gain access to all back issues in digital form, plus receive current print and digital issues by subscribing now at gen-us.net slash subscribe. Coho US is the hub of the co-housing movement, convening individuals and organizations with a shared vision for intentional community living. Expert-led courses and forums on the Co-Housing Institute provide the skills and expertise to build and sustain your community, available both live and on demand. Join Coho US for the Commons, a monthly gathering space for the co-housing curious, the 10th of every month at 10 a.m. Mountain. Learn more at www.cohousing.org. Welcome to the Inside Community Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Mesritz. I hope that you are binge listening to the first two episodes of our second season and are ready to continue on our journey of exploring the idea of placemaking. In the previous episode, I had a conversation with Brian Bowen, and we talked about how to design spaces and places for people to really thrive. Brian's experience is that of an architect. And he comes at this question from a design perspective. And so with him, we discuss tools and structures of design and even some of the legal aspects of what it is to plan a habitat. In this interview, I'm going to be speaking with Reedy DeCruz, who comes at the question of place and placemaking from a very different vantage point. Reedy is a genderqueer Malayali who grew up in the city of Bangalore in southern India and moved to the Wapato Valley, also known as Portland, in 2010. They have dedicated over a decade of their life to designing community processes that cultivate liberatory and healing senses of place. Reedy has cultivated a place justice practice through more than a decade of service on Chinook lands. Currently, they co-facilitate an herbal immersion program for BIPOC called the Moon and Mirror Apprenticeship Program and are a nature educator for QT BIPOC community through wild diversity. And Reedy is also teaching an upcoming course through the FIC entitled Reclaiming Permaculture and Placemaking for Liberation, which I will link to in the show notes. So I'm sure you can already tell that this conversation is just going to be happening on a very different plane than the last one, and I hope you really enjoy and drink deep from this well of wisdom that Rudy holds. I know I certainly did. This is definitely one of those episodes that I recommend finding a nice place to sit and just listen if you can, so that you can really absorb what they're sharing. Rudy DeCruz, welcome to the Inside Community Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I I know that you wanted to ground this conversation in some mindfulness, so I'd love to, to just get started with that. Thank you. Yeah, 
Um, so I'm going to invite you to get comfortable wherever you are. Maybe draw your attention to the points of contact that your body has with the ground, anything you're sitting on or laying on. Just feeling into these points of connection that ultimately are grounded and rooted in the earth. Just loosening up into that support and relaxing, knowing that the earth really can and does hold us as fully and wholly as we are. I'm inviting you to soften your gaze or if you feel comfortable close your eyes so you can invite some insight looking inward sensing and feeling into this body this present moment this time in this place. I'm inviting you to take a few deep breaths of life-giving air that this wonderful earth again provides that we depend on that is truly a part of us automatically by design. Breathing in spaciousness, breathing out presence. Breathing in belonging, breathing out, presence. Breathing in, liberation. Breathing out, presence. Just taking a moment to notice spaciousness we've just invited in, the support that is around us, and also giving a lot of gratitude for each one of us in this moment being present. Thank you for doing that with me. Thank you. Thank you.
Hmm. Well, I think that was a really great setup for a conversation that can, might, probably will push into (laughs) some areas that are a little bit sensitive, a little bit tender, possibly triggering. And I'm really grateful to start in that way so that hopefully anyone that's listening that has a moment of like, oh, that's a lot, that's uncomfortable, can just find themselves back in that softened place a little. So thank you for starting us there. And yeah, really, I think we're here today to talk about um, placemaking as a tool for liberation. And mm-hmm. I, I want to I want to weave our way in that direction. But first, I just want to start with what is placemaking? <laughs> like, what is this? Even, <laughs> what is this idea even? And I know that for a lot of communities that are founding or in their early years, how to be in right relation with the land that they're stewarding or the land that they're occupying can be really challenging as we talk about Mm -hmm. uh, not just being in right relation to the land as in treating it respectfully and mindfully, but also honoring its past, also how to plan and design for humans to inhabit that land in a really good way. And as we think about planning and design, placemaking has become kind of the buzzword of recent years. And I know you've got some interesting kind of perspectives on that, uh, particularly as it relates to urban planning. And just for our guests, I'll say that, um, you know, Wikipedia talks about the subject saying, placemaking capitalizes on a local community's assets, inspiration, and potential with the intention of creating public spaces that improve urban vitality and promote people's health, happiness, and well-being. So I'd love for you to just help us unpack placemaking from your worldview and set the stage for us a little bit about how you think about this subject. Thank you. Yeah. I think first I'd like to kind of delve into this, the public space kind of aspect of it. There's a lot that again, happens in planning with bureaus, like the Bureau of Transportation, for example, has been a long-time collaborator. Um, and, you know, public art, we, we kind of see placemaking interfacing with public space. And I just want to, especially when we're talking about place, acknowledge and uh, underscore that we are all on indigenous land, stolen indigenous land on Turtle Island. And in many senses from folks that I've been working with and learning from and learning with, that there is no such thing as private property ownership. Like there's just a very different relationship to land. And so this whole notion of private property, I just want to upend that straight away in the definition and say that for me, placemaking is not confined and restrained to what lies between property lines, which for me are 
you know, drawing on maybe permaculture vocabulary for a second, the invisible structures of a very colonial imagination. And so they transgress and go way beyond what just happens in so-called public space. Uh, yeah, and I think the placemaking for me is also just an orientation and approach to remembering relationship to land, as I've been taught by some of my mentors and friends and colleagues. And what I'll also add to that is, um, you know, with the with the wiki, I love Wikipedia. I don't want to like drag Wikipedia <laughs> specifically, you know, I'm like, no, that, that that's not my point. But I think what I'm noticing from that definition too is it's very uh, product oriented, like capitalizing on the assets of a local community. And it feels like the, it feels like one approach, you know, like ecosystem services, what are all the things we can get from this, from this tree? <laughs> and I think that's, that's fine as one aspect of connection and one aspect of like viewing someone um, and something. But for me, it's not, it can't only be the utilitarian productive quality that's very much based in uh, an imagination that's, again, very extractive. And so for me, placemaking is also kind of a spiritual process of really feeling into what this land and all of the relationships with the more than human world and also humans over time, what is it really holding and what can we do here together into the future? So one of the ways that I describe my place practice is, um, is a form of being in relationship with myself, with the more than human world and with each other as humans. And it's really those three components that for me uh, make up the the core of placemaking or a place practice. And I say that because place, you know, was something that I remember I was in grad school and read something that I really resonated with. I think it came from the field of humanist geography or human geography. And it said that place was, according to some geographers at least, was a concept that kind of held not just a geographic location, so not just land, but also land that was imbued with meaning. And so inherently it felt like land and people together. And in many languages and many cultures, we don't separate nature, culture, land and people and so for me, that kind of worldview, that that bedrock of um, approaching land as if it's it's not separate from me, it's and it's not been separate from various people who have tended it since time immemorial, come come through as guests, um, and also all the violence and colonization and um, just all the hardship and grief that it it holds all of the above together. So, yeah, there's a there's that relationship. There's a temporality. There's time that goes through it, um, so that we don't play into this amnesia of oh, this place 
we need to make place because there's a lack of it, <laughs> which I often find with, you know, designers, we go somewhere and, you know, I know from the field of permaculture, for example, there's there's like needing to observe a deep practice of observation, but how often do designers actually spend time in a place and how much of that observation is limited by our own, you know, lineage, our own experiences, our own lenses. One of my teachers said, said to me once, um, you only see what you believe. So if you, rather than you only believe what you see. <laughs> um, and so if we're already cued and kind of honed in on seeing something, valuing something in a particular way, I think we close ourselves off to uh, what's actually there or what that means to someone else. So I think that in in my practice of place, you know, as has been informed by so many other people, and that's why I don't want to say it's like it's a my thing because this possessive ownership thing is, again, I find quite problematic. So I just want to share like how I've learned and how I've taught and what and through my own experiences, I really try to approach any situation, any place with with a deep practice of listening to um, all that is there already and all that wants to be. Hmm. That's a great start to this conversation. <laughs> I love it. Like let's set the stage. Let's let's get let's get clear on a few things. Um, you know, as we talk about placemaking and the, and a word that I've heard you use around place taking, and I'd love mm -hmm. for you to kind of peel those two things apart a little bit too, just as we're as we're setting the stage for for how how this is going to go. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. And maybe how I'll approach that that question, which is very much, I also just want to say these are all questions. Like, I don't feel like I'm answering them, quote unquote, answering them and just responding like how my own <laughs> um, approach of questioning or curiosity is. So with place taking and place making, and I'm starting to peel back a little bit of this, where who gets to decide what kind of place, what is a place, uh, and what needs to be made there. For example, I've, I've witnessed this a lot where, including in myself, like forget talking about anybody else, but in myself where I'm like, oh, look at that, that that spot looks great for some placemaking. And what is that? There's a There's a perceived lack of something that I'm putting onto that place, um, which may or may not be the case for the people who actually live around there. If um, if I had the curiosity and the humility to kind of be more, um, be more in relationship with the people who are already in close proximity to the place or who have connections, right? Going back to that geographer's um, conce conceptualization, like maybe there's a lot of meaning. There probably is a lot of meaning imbued in that place that I'm just not aware of. So again, that that approach of like how do we how do we kind of identify places and non-places, right? And um 
who decides how and what to make of them. And that's one aspect that I kind of moved with. And then place taking. I see, for example, um, who gets to engage in a lot of these so-called placemaking initiatives. Oftentimes, people with a lot of uh, time privilege in the sense they can volunteer, they have time, spare time to uh, volunteer on projects and stuff like that, which if, say, you know, I'm not, I'm not generalizing here, but say if you're a single mom and have to work multiple jobs, that might not be something that feels available to you to like volunteer on a neighborhood project to 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 do some so-called placemaking project, right? And so I think inherently in our processes, even now when we when we try to orient towards doing something uh like making a place, I think that a lot of people get left out of that conversation very deliberately. Like, you know, there's there's been initiatives and placemaking has been really, really growing in where I'm where I am located right now on Chinook lands, or what we call colonially Portland. Um, and I remember one initiative where it was <laughs> defined and uh, it was it was said to be for quote unquote frontline communities. And then was essentially an initiative to help black and brown businesses. Again, like completely worthy of support. I'm not saying that black and brown businesses don't deserve support. But at the same time, we commercialize, we were commercializing so-called public space and there's a housing crisis happening. And so we would rather provide a sheltered space with government funding for people to do more business rather than provide housing. And we're still conducting as a city, we're conducting sweeps, displacing people from, you know, not not earning, like not making a business, but literally finding a place to rest their heads. So mm-hmm. there's just, you know what I mean? Like, so, and, and again, Berlin this was a huge you, issue with that. That's a yeah. big, big, big problem in that city. Yeah. And it's, it's gotten... It's, dramatic over the last 10 years yeah and I I problematic (laughs) yeah and I don't think it's unique to Portland I think that we we are not in I mean I'm from what we now call India and housing issues like I think housing is just an issue is a global issue and it has these different flavors that are place-based and so for me this this thing of who gets to take place make a place and take up space right like this place taking like who gets to do that um is very very important and also the relationality of it like for example uh, I so appreciate when the uprisings in 2020 were happening all over the country really there was this just amazing outburst of color and temporary art like whether it was chalk or these paintings and murals that came up and you know no one was facilitating that like as as in people were just taking up space and I think that was very beautiful given that especially black folks um, people of the African diaspora have been silenced and violently killed and there's just been so much violence and um 
and push back and not allowing Black folks to take up space. And so I think it's absolutely an act of resistance and an act of thrivance to, to take up that place. Whereas, you know, you contrast that to, say, um, you know, a different group of people who own their homes and... And I've literally had people have this conversation with me. They're like, we want to take back our city. And I'm like, from whom? Who do you want to take it back from? You know, and the underlying, I would say, value there is, yeah, we want to take it back from from violence, gangs and <laughs> gangs and houses people. Like there's just this thing of uh, we want to protect the um, the colonial project, right? Like the imagination that this place is safe for certain kinds of people. So again, I feel like who is doing the play, the the work? Who's who is this place being created for? Who is being supported and resourced to do that work? Um, how we do it, not just what do we do it for and who do we do it with, but how we do it um, is also of such importance because say we do it in a way that burns people out or um is just lacking the care that we we say will be in the in the product right if that does isn't reflected in the process of how we work with people talk with people yeah stuff's gonna come up not everyone's gonna agree um and i think that's where i feel like there's such a powerful spiritual healing component to a practice of place because the truth is that while there may not be like tangible forms of violence happening, like we, a friend of mine, I remember once said like, we are on, we're on, we're on a graveyard. Like there's like how many people have died here from genocide or from violence. Right. And we're also simultaneously on um, holy ground. Like how many people have found divinity like it's this layering of meaning and um experience that every place really holds and um to i think move something forward that brings the people together and ties that up with also just the the land itself like land having and being given a voice um if we're if we're willing and again, humble and listening enough to be like, so what is this place actually, like, what is this place? <laughs> you know, what all has happened here? And, and again, so like hard, I said, though, like, I, I, I mean, not to interject, but I, I, when I think about a place like Portland, or any mm -hmm. major city, you know, in any big city or urban area, or even suburban area that's been occupied, mm -hmm. for lack of a better mm -hmm. word, I mean, by, by colonial people or, I mean, it's like, how do you come into a space like that? How do you come into an urban area that's probably had humble beginnings and then through the rise of industry now seen, saw a heyday at one point of, of new, new buildings and cars and roads and infrastructure that gets put in and then sort of a decline that comes after that. And then you see a space that's now seemingly in a state of degradation that's probably at this point completely devoid of nature. You know, there's there maybe there's a couple trees on the streets. I'm just thinking of these like urban pockets 
and particularly for me in my mind is parts of um, Baltimore where I grew up or parts of uh, where parts of the city, like the buildings are collapsing. They're just falling down. There's no, you know, the life has just been sucked out of that area. And you have people who want to come back in and like rebuild and revivify. But how can you even mm-hmm. connect to the spirit of a place that's had its any kind of sense of connection to nature completely taken stripped away years and years ago and and it's like it seems like you're just creating it out of thin air in some ways so like where do you even start where do you even start i mean i guess we're specifically talking more about um urban or suburban realities now we can talk about mm-hmm. more rural realities later but when you come into an urban space that wants to be revivified um Mm-hmm. Where do you start? Yeah, I mean, for me, and this is, again, why I go back to how it's a practice, right? I'm not going to have answers that m- might make sense for you. But how for me, what what that reminds me of is being in India, in my parents' place, very urban, very like ornamental lawn kind of landscaping, um, air that's not great and I can feel it in my lungs and the burning sensation in my eyes, like it's impacted. And I think the the truth of it, like there's multiple realities. One is that I feel like um, something that I want to bring forward is that there is no nature without human influence at this point, even like the most remote kind of jungled area, like the Amazon being a food forest, for example, we've always been intertwined. So I think for me as a concept, like just moving away from this purity principle, for example, where like nature is kind of like good and pure versus, you know, built up spaces are somehow degraded, like that kind of, I don't know, that that duality, like kind of moving away from viewing them as so separate, even when it's so, so difficult for me. So when I was in India, something that I did is I made an altar and I put a bunch of um, found natural objects from my walks. I love picking up seeds. I love picking up little like, um, yeah, there there were seeds, there were stones, flowers when they're blooming. And I set this up and and I put tap water, which has a very like, it was very like what we call hard water. So there's a lot of calcification when it evaporated. And I put it in the center and I was like, all land is holy, all land is sacred. And even when I'm struggling, me personally struggling so much to find divinity in it, um, I think it's it's very important to recognize and practice that, that divinity. Um, and I think that applies to people as well, right? Like, because it's so easy to say, oh, this person, they're on the streets, they're like, so, you know, their lives have been so difficult. And I feel like that that inherently, that value judgment, at least personally for me, allows me to kind of dehumanize and distance myself and be like, mm, there's no hope here. Um, there's no responsibility here. There's no divinity here. But I think that for me is a very powerful calling to question that and to, you know, how they say like fake it till you till you make it. Like 
for me, it was just looking at that altar every day and just being like, yeah, I may not fully feel that in my body, but I know, I know somewhere in there, like, yeah, this too is sacred and this too deserves healing just like any other place. So that's one thing. I love starting with ritual. You, we, we started with a mindfulness practice. The other thing I would say is how, who gets to benefit, right? Like, cause you're not going to have and like there's you have to start somewhere and that could look like a lot of different ways and i'm trying to think one way that i i think i started in my when i came here to total island is i was really curious i was like yeah i studied anthropology by the way and i was really curious all these textbooks talking about native people as if they no longer existed and at that point my student housing was located really close to the native american student and community center and so I was like pretty sure there's Nate Fox just down the street from me and so I just go and hang out there and it was just it was like you know this um it's like the systemic gaslighting right like where we're fed this narrative from all these different places that something doesn't exist or people don't aren't alive anymore or this is an age a Native American myth, like how many signboards in pu- public parks over here have I seen? Like, na- according to Native legend, <laughs> um, and wow, it's right, and it's just like again this very kind of pioneer imagination that's being centered, um, whereas people exist and people are definitely having the complexity of their experience, right? Like that there's a native center and there's native folks and there's indigenous studies and there's like stuff happening. And so I'd often kind of like trail off from the anthro department where I was like, Hmm, I'm noticing that there's not native folks teaching or participating in this program here, at least at the time or to my knowledge, um, not too many of us. I was the only grad school uh, grad student of color and then I'd venture down down the street or up the street over to the Native Center and I'd be like, yeah, okay, y'all are here. Can I just like be with y'all? And like, so what's happening instead of like reading about it in textbooks? I just keep going back to like relationship, 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 which is why when I f- first described my practice of place, it was all about relationship, relationship to myself, relationship to the more than human world and to uh, other humans. And it was, it has been through that relationship where for me, the experience of being now, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, people of color. I didn't identify as a person of color or a person from the global majority until I came here, right? So really delving into that, how identity is relational inherently and how do I get a sense for where I am is by connecting with people, very simple you know like I know that for example in permaculture going back to that because I trained as as um trained in permaculture and have my own complicated feelings towards that that methodology as well but the first the first principle which is again like science scientific observation whether that's western eurocentric science or indigenous science it's just observe observe and then interact what is interact but be in relationship right and so I think I don't I can't foretell what you will 
observe or what you will feel, who you will connect with, whether that's a who of a crow or a who of a neighbor passing down the street. But I think starting with that practice of listening and cultivating relationship, that's that's where it begins for me. And then continuing that forward, you know, when say there's a, you decide like, oh, okay, yeah, p- people seem like they want, you know, a garden here, then who gets to benefit from that garden? Who is it designed for, right? Is it designed for um, for the bird people, for like nature and wildlife to come through? Is it also designed in a way that people can, people feel welcome to to snack and and gather and harvest um, or is there is there some form of reciprocity and relationality that is inherently built in that transgresses the way that we are um, kind of what's the word siloed into these into these kind of containers, whether it's age group or skin color or you know all these different ways where we're like, okay, we we got to keep things keep things locked into a particular com- community, but how do we how do we go beyond that? When is it appropriate? There's there's just a lot of, I think it's a very personal, I would say it's a personal um, calling for me. So that's how I would respond to what you just asked. Because I, I don't know what it means for you, you know, and, and I think it would be um, very foolish and not humble of me to say, I know what your path is. But I, I believe that by following that practice and that process, the the path reveals itself kind of a thing. I'm so glad you're able to be here and tune in to the launch of our second season. If you are getting some benefit out of these conversations, I hope you'll take a moment to drop into ic.org slash podcast and support our season two fundraiser that is underway right now. Your donations help us to pay for everything from the cost of equipment and software to the time it takes to research and edit the shows to generating transcripts. This podcast and the FIC are run by people like you who want to see a better world and believe that collaborative culture is the way to get there. Please make a donation so that we can keep on with this valuable work. And now a few messages from our sponsors. The Inside Community Podcast is sponsored by the Foundation for Intentional Community. FIC has over 35 years of partnership with hundreds of intentional communities around the world. Our mission is to champion social, ecological, and economic justice and resiliency through the support and growth of cooperative culture and intentional communities. We do this through our free directory of intentional communities, online events and courses, a free forum space for discussion and connection, and many other tools and resources for creating, starting, and living in community. As a thank you to our podcast listeners, go to the show notes to find a coupon code for 20% off FIC's books and workshops. This is a time when people need community. When most of the world is isolated, you can find connection through the communities at ic.org. Caddis is not your everyday architecture firm. Their interest in regenerative and community-supportive design has cultivated an expertise in intentional and co-housing communities with a focus on rich and healthy human experiences. Design excellence and pragmatism are at the core of their work, 
as is an ethic of service to the client and natural or urban environments. Caddis is a leader in sustainable design, zero energy homes, passive house, and delightful neighborhoods. They are experts in grassroots community engagement and apply attention, sophisticated design, and creative solutions to every project. If it's worth building, it's worth building it well. Find Caddis on Facebook and Instagram and at caddispc.com. That's C-A-D-D-I-S-P-C.com. I just love, <laughs> I just have to come back to this because I'm trying to imagine what it would be like if you were at like a, um, you know, an, an old Roman church or something in Europe and they said something like, according to uh, the legend of the people here and then told a story about like Jesus or something like that. Like it, people would, it would blow <laughs> their minds to have their, <laughs> their spirituality handled in such a way. And I think that that kind of, um, yeah, blindness that we have to other people's perspectives, uh, to me really, again, comes back to this idea of you have to observe, you have to ask the questions first. Mm-hmm. And so I'm th- as I'm thinking about this, as I'm thinking about like drilling down a little bit, getting a little bit more specific, um, you know, for, for groups that have a sense of place, have a piece of land that they're stewarding, have, uh, relations with the people that they are potentially sharing this land with, because this is about community, um, Mm -hmm. have relations and understanding about the people that came before and what's come before. My next question is really about some of these, um, these permaculture principles that you've talked about and, and how do those sort of dovetail into how people could be thinking about the spaces that they're preparing to hold and occupy and steward and, um, yeah. How do, how, how do they live in right relation to the space and like, what are the things they should be considering? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, one of the biggest things is to consider is access to land, right? Like we started off with this public-private kind of duality. And I think, again, just really sitting with and reflecting and, and rooting into who accesses this land and how that feels really important to kind of elevate at this point because you know i i feel like the commu- the word community gets bandied around to the point of like meaninglessness at this point because i'm like i don't know what that means like what is so i think also bringing in more specificity like which community oh it's it's like the land based community that's in this area or like just more specifics cuz i feel like it it doesn't mean everyone, right? And um, 
so anyway i'm just having this thought to kind of um well i let me clarify because i mean we talk in yeah. this, on this podcast we talk a lot about intentional community i'm talking about people who are coming together with a shared vision uh, to, mm-hmm. to live together in some way. And that could look like a co-housing that could look like a co-living that could look a lot of different ways. It could look like a full-on land-based intentional community. I think a lot yeah. of the things that we talk about on this show kind of spread out into other types of little C community, like, um, you mm-hmm. know, a, a thriving neighborhood of people that know each other and mm-hmm. have relationships, but maybe, are not as interdependent. You know, they're not mm-hmm. necessarily as interwoven into each other's lives. So for me, mm-hmm. for what we kind of talk about here, I think a lot of it does come back to that, the what I call big C community of intentional community or people who are actually choosing very consciously to build life mm-hmm. together and to be interdependent upon each other and upon the land. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a, just a diff, it's a slightly different mindset than like a, just a group of neighbors, you know, or people in a mm-hmm. cul-de-sac mm-hmm. that kind of, ha- kind of have some things in common. They barbecue together, but their finances are not intertwined <laughs> in any way. And their, their land holding is not intertwined. Like one person can sell off their parcel to whoever they want, as opposed to a community held space that might be, that would just operate with different agreements, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not certain the degree to which this is true, but I, I certainly feel like um, the kind of community you're talking about can and has existed in urban spaces as well. Like I've heard of. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like. LA that, Eco Village. Yeah. LA Eco Like. Kailash Eco Village here, but but even beyond that, I feel like the, I think the ratio of people from the global majority, like how we've, all like to some degree, always had to live in community, um, in different ways. For example, I feel like people when you're not allowed to hold land, for example, in like in Oregon when that was just recently you know, kind of taken taken out of the legal infrastructure of um, oppression and violence. and But we still see just very little land held by people from the global majority, right? And so I feel like people have always kind of banded together to be like, okay, whether it's like move, living close by, helping each other with, you know, buy houses. So, so yeah, I just wanted to also also say that I don't think that maybe I'll say it blatantly like this. Like, I don't think white folks came up with intentional communities. Um, and so I, I, right. And so I just want to expand this notion of even big C community to be like, yeah, there's so many different ways in which folks have been um, doing all of those, all of that, creating interdependencies as survival strategies, because it was just like, what else do you do? It's, it's part of the culture. Right. And I think the difference from the way that you were describing an urban neighborhood is that I think the the kind of pathology of whiteness and I I don't mean whiteness is not something from my perspective and many others, I'm sure like whiteness is not just limited to 
limited to white-bodied folks. So it's it's this it's this thing that is unfortunately um, part of our global imagination and aspiration, even. But yeah, there's part of the pathology of whiteness is this um, amnesia that we are interdependent and, and and interconnected and actually need each other. And so then, in that setting, in an urban settlement, yeah, there is like people just living together and not talking to each other. So yes, and I would I would even argue. I mean. I don't know. I could be totally wrong here, but when I think of like, oh, there's like in this city, there's this vibrant Cuban community or this this five, uh, vibrant Ethiopian community or there's this vibrant, like I think in those environments where what you're talking about, where you have people who are banded together, who are deeply involved in each other's lives, they have a shared, a deeply shared culture shared mm-hmm. food, shared spiritual beliefs, shared practices, and also a, a deep need because of oppression to be intertwined and to rely on each other. In some ways, I see, you know, I mean, it's like the poverty of white culture is that it doesn't have that shared culture. It's become very homogenized and maybe the the highest value is capitalism. You know, the highest value is, can you have more stuff? Can you have the bigger car, the bigger house, the younger, prettier, hotter wife, you know, the perfect show dog or like whatever, all these things that you can acquire and like get are. And that's, that's it. Like a lot of people, a lot of people that I know, white bodied people don't have feel like they're really impoverished in the way that they're completely disconnected from a sense of indigenous culture or a naturalized version of themselves a natural connection to nature the land their history it's all kind of been i mean for lack of a better word whitewashed and so yeah i mean i i totally agree with you that there are these these different kinds of of communities that yeah, mm-hmm. it's not to even put a value like one is better than the other, but they form from different needs and different desires and different necessities. But I think at the end of the day, they all sort of come back to mm-hmm. a deep desire for connection, yep. relationship, as you say, this deep desire to yep. be in relation, to be in relation, to be seen, to be held, mm-hmm. to be known, to be accepted by other mm-hmm. people, by the land. Uh, yeah. by their environment, you know? So yeah, just thinking about mm-hmm. how to how to cultivate that connection regardless of, of what your community <laughs> looks like or how separate or connected you are to some kind of cultural um, tether, I suppose. Yeah, and and that's that's it for me, right? Like that's why I was saying earlier that the word community, like I think it, uh sometimes for me it obscures what's actually happening because that community means in my experience right like community means different things so many different things to so many different people i mean any word would right like there's the multitudes of perspectives that are not like bad or wrong and so for me again it's those the how do we intentionally design con- connections what kind of connections connecting to what right like because I also feel like as someone who's um grown up in India where 
community doesn't just mean good stuff <laughs> to me. Um, community can feel stifling, can feel like, right? It's like, what type of community? Like, what? That's why I say, like, there's, it's not just this noun that means the same thing. It's like, there's something that animates it. So, what, what type, what is it functioning as? What's it in relation to? And so, and that's why for me also in the practice of place, I put in there like that sometimes, you know, more than connecting with with stuff outside or with people outside, I really need a practice of connecting to myself. And so it doesn't mean that everything we design, like everything needs to be mixed up, right? Like potluck style, like only potluck, like and or like uh, dal kichdi, like everything one one pot soup. I think that's appropriate for certain types of things and certain needs. But then I also feel like sometimes we need that distinctness. We need our individuality or we need that like silent space to just be with ourselves, draw our attention inward. The truth being, I mean, we're not one singular self either, right? But but you get what I'm saying, like to be in community with ourselves, to be in connection with ourselves. And so there's there's a there's a very I think beautiful nuance and multiplicity to what community means, and how people access it, and um, how it what effect it has on us. Whether that's like is it tied in and aligned with how we want to grow and unfold and be liberated and be in this be in this dynamic dance of healing together, or does it? also kind of enmesh us and entangle us in ways that um, are codependent and like, you know, kind of trauma bonding and and bring us into like, you know, potential for healing. But um, I think there's just ways to hold that dynamic dance, not again, as like a be all end all, like fix it kind of way, like in a static way, but to be like, how are we again, like, what are we designing connection and community and relationship for and how are we doing that because here's another thing you know when it when it and I'm not going to just use like markers for this land but say if there's someone for example that has had intergenerational access to wealth and land the way that they design community will be vastly different from say someone who hasn't had that right? Like, and how they design their finances, say, for example. So I think, again, like this one size fits all situation doesn't, doesn't work. And, and so just having that, that nuance, and this is where I feel like the, the, the design, the design principles, and like, just this, this thought of like, oh, wait, we get to design this, like, we get to bring some intentional choice and consent into it like decision making and you know we may not have the full picture I mean do we really ever have the whole picture no um there always is mystery to it right but I think that we can do the best we can and and then not be too attached because everything's impermanent anyway and then we just get to continue in a process right like of designing of being in relationship like I don't know if I'm I don't know if this is all tying back in, but I wanted to, I want to like, I want to like get the, the thing the like, okay, so give me like the three things. I feel like there's part of my nature is like, okay, so what do we need to do? Like, what are the actionable items? Spell it out for me. Just give me the instruction manual. And, and I'm, I always find myself in these conversations where people are like, 
just no, Rebecca, like that's not a thing. Like your mind wants to do that, but that's not the way to do it. I'm like, ah, <laughs> foiled, foiled. It's very, and then, and then to bring it all back to impermanence, like yeah. it's very, it's very Buddhist. <laughs> oh, but it's very, it's like, I think that that's what I mean again when it's like, are we listening, right? Like, are we actually mm-hmm. listening? Listening to to listen and hear what's being said or listening to be like, oh, yeah, I, I already know what I want. I'm just going to like fit it into this thing, right? And I don't think that's a Rebecca thing at all. I think it's all of us. Like, I do that all the time, right? I'm like, walk by somewhere and be like, mm, wouldn't it be cute if they like planted some raspberries? Why? Because I love raspberries. Whatever. It's like we... <laughs> Uh, we we just I I think that's okay for me it's not I don't fault us for having desires and imaginations and wanting certainty I feel like I feel like that's a very human human thing um I think where it becomes interesting for me is to observe that right like to observe oh I'm reaching for this thing and then just doing a quick scan like what am I not what am I kind of ignoring in myself like what fear maybe is this seated in or who am I potentially harming right like because I feel like once we observe that 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 thing then then for me is when the work begins oh now I'm going to go into a shame spiral because I'm like damn I've been doing this for like decades now and I still I'm still not perfect oh surprise surprise yeah none of us get to be perfect we're all going to make mistakes we're all blundering through this um in our own way and I think ultimately for me one of the deepest practices has been to learn to love myself through all of the harm and the just yeah the mistakes that I'm making all of the brokenness that I feel of displacement being a person of the diaspora like all of that like for me that's that's the that's the that's the tilt from which any kind of creative imagination and and connect connection to to this practice really comes from you know it's it's deeply embedded within that and I continue to learn so much from every obviously everything around me and everything within me and not to say again like oh I'm just gonna go and um you know sit like sit on a cushion and think about how I need to heal myself no this is all still very much a relational practice right like even the attention of to within oneself and like how to love myself through it I think radiates in how I'm able to love other people that remind me of myself that I get very annoyed with and have a lot of conflicts with that's what that that medicine is it's like oh right (laughs) this is so like it's just that that reflection right what's happening outside is what is a reflection of what's happening within and sometimes we we need to tend what's within more than what we need to more than what uh, than we need to tend what's outside and sometimes the opposite too and sometimes together like again I don't want to give you know the give you the one two three but yeah I just really when I'm like oh look at that thing out there I'm like "Mm -hmm, really cool yeah 
go do that thing because being with nature, hands in the soil, very healing. And also, <laughs> what is that really informing me about myself, my my internal oh. landscape? Uh, my heart right now is just on fire. I, <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I, I know for myself, I'm the kind of person that, um, I needed. I need to to do the thing. Like my one of my shadows is, or my weaknesses, I should say, is is really just being with someone who is uncomfortable or having a process or is ill or something like that, I just want to fix, I just want to do something to make it better. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I immediately jump to, can I just, what can I do? Like, can I, can I buy a thing? Can I fix a thing? Can Mm -hmm. I clean a thing? And seeing, seeing that here in this moment, like, I just want to give an answer. I just want to like, this is how you just get it, get it to be. But then this beautiful, like mystical, spiritual practice of, place as you're talking mm-hmm. about it and allowing the kind of waves of discomfort with our own view of how it should be or could be or a sense of loss and longing for what it was or what's been destroyed. Mm-hmm. That deep desire to like fix a place or fix a thing, you know, fix Mm -hmm. free. So often I walk around my own house or our land and I'm like, Oh, this needs to get fixed. This needs to get fixed. And it it takes a lot of work to just be with and appreciate Mm -hmm. and allow it to be whatever it is in this moment. And so I love Mm -hmm. this, what you're dropping on us right now around just the practice of place and and mm-hmm. the the fullness of all of those emotions just like moving through you and yeah and hopefully from that place people can start to think about i mean how beautiful to like clear some of that clear some of those expectations those desires before embarking on a journey of creating a home, for example, or creating a place for people to gather or creating a place mm-hmm. for people to just be still and silent mm-hmm. or creating a place for people to observe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's that creating a deep sense of belonging to ourselves, right? Like, I think that's one, one way it's, it's, arisen within me is yes I'm deeply embedded with the places around like land and I've one of my friends jokes like these bodies these meat suits that we hurtle around in our everyday lives you know like this is also a place this body it's also land (laughs) connected to land but yeah how do we how do we be in this place how do we be and and also place being time-based as well like how do we be in this place and as you were saying like you know walking around and like wanting to fix this that and the other and it may only be language but for me language is powerfully evocative it's like spell work in a way and instead of fixing stuff I, I, I have I like to try to feel into like what it what 
what's that shift in my energy when I'm actually tending stuff or taking or care giving mm. care to something mm-hmm. right because the fixing feels like power over and this is what I mean by liberation is threaded through relationally in every aspect um, I've certainly taken out a lot of frustration and aggression on brooms for example be like you know just <laughs> like oh I gotta clean this clean this stuff up and again I'm not going to throw shade at, like, we all process, we, like, it, you know, forgiveness is a, is another practice, right? And it doesn't mean we're right or wrong, but I, I just imagine when I'm with that broom, the same tool, and when I'm like, oh, look at this, I want to, like, oh, my, my housemate's coming back after a trip or after something tender that happened, I really want them to enter the space and feel like, they have arrived in a place where care exists and care is the language, the visual language of what they are coming into, right? Like how differently will I approach um, tending the space with the same tools with that goal? It's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I guess, you know, I just, before we, before we wrap up, um, I do want to come back a little bit to the idea of liberation and Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know where I, I want it to go, but just to kind of close on, on, on the idea of liberation and the possibility of this practice being a tool for liberation and just hear from you, your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked. I feel like I've spoken a lot to, you know, the personal journey that I, I've had with it. Um, and maybe I'll scale to some of the incredible people, places, and projects that I get to work with. And for me, you know, it may sound trite, but I really live and breathe and animate this um yeah just this spell i'm going to use the word spell that uh we like i'm only liberated when we're all liberated right and so it's that that reach that seeking that practice of liberation that's not just for my own personal gain and not from this um this lack of this, like, oh, I need to fix something. Um, just again, practice, right? We're, again, we're not. <laughs> this obviously, I'm going to be reaching, and all of these things are simultaneously happening within me. Um, but yeah, I think just practicing liberation and what that means and looks like with different, within different contexts. So, for example, one of the ways that um for me black liberation obviously is really important black joy black black folks thriving in public space <laughs> um not just in so called private space but being able to be to be free to be free on this land like wow what a oh, what a difficult and yet completely integral imagination and dream to live into and um 
for me, liberation and through placemaking and place-based practice is to and to work towards uplifting, amplifying, supporting, sitting with just just all the ways that we can be in relationship with how that can be true for different different groups of people and different individuals themselves. So one project that I am learning so much from is the Justice for Keaton Otis project. And it's um it's about what does black healing and joy look like in public space when so much black life has been taken away by police brutality. And I think that's a really powerful story to continue to live into. And how do we memorialize people who are the, you know, who have faced and lost their lives? Their lives have been taken away by state-sanctioned violence. I think those stories are really important to kind of imbue and embed into our woven fabric of place. How does, what does it mean for Indigenous folks, urban Indigenous folks? Because, you know, we get into the politics, tribal politics, and um, and I think, again, all of these things are important. Uh, but also for folks, for the Indigenous diaspora who've been displaced, relocated, um, forced into urban settlements in this present moment, what does that mean for people to reconnect and connect with land and to their life ways, their life-based practices? You know, I think that's an important um, place-based narrative. For me, again, as a, as a brown settler here, I wasn't stolen from my homelands and brought here. I have much privilege to have chosen to come here. So I feel like I'm talking about my practice, right? My liberation practice is to is to ensure that um, the the imaginations, dreamings, um, aspirations of place that I see elevated and kind of on full blast, right? Even when you think about Portland, like what what are the stories about Portland that get blasted on the media or in our conversations and I think who's being silenced, like Arundhati Roy says, it's not giving voice to the voiceless, um, but it's really looking at like, what are those stories that have been um, deliberately silenced and discarded and violently subdued and repressed? So, and to do that in a way, like in terms of my social positioning and my own lineage and my own kind of where I am in my journey of healing to continue to learn how to do that and to unfold together, you know, because as, for example, I'd show up at all these like meetings with urban indigenous folks. And then people would ask me, they're like, are you indigenous Riti? And I was like, whoa, that means very different thing in India. I wouldn't identify as indigenous in, in, in an Indian context, even though I've done the 23 and me and I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty genetically (laughs) pretty Indian but it means something so different there and so then rooting into like oh 
you know, what is ancestry and lineage and what's the brokenness I feel in my own lineage? Why, like, what's that draw towards like fighting, fighting this fight or like growing this garden, right? Like Alok says, your, your wound, my garden is the name of one of their books. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how beautiful. So yeah, just turning that inward to be like, oh yeah, this means I have some work to do around healing my own relationship to my own indigeneity, right? Mm. And that includes white-bodied folks. Like what indigenous solidarity is not just like this, oh, I'm going to go and support someone out there, this caretaking, codependent, right? It's also, it's both simultaneously, yes, there's a responsibility to indigenous solidarity, but then what's our responsibility to connecting with our own indigeneity our own colonization that has happened so that we can we can do this to one another and the same goes with the our black brothers sisters and and kin um you know i it deepens and deepens like to really sit with the ongoing genocide that's happening to folks from the african diaspora here there's a lot of discomfort. And again, I'm just like, I just want to go and like fix it and make something, you know, do something out there. And then, but to sit with the grief, I think for me, the amount of grief that comes up with this work. Um, and there's such medicine to it though, because otherwise I feel like, and I've been doing this, right? Which again, not talking about other people. In my own practice, I'm just, then I feel like hurling expectations and my wounds, um, I'm just walking around with them and not tending to them in a way that feels responsible. And then they come with me into the room and then harm happens when I'm not tending my own wounds, right? And so I feel like, yeah, there's that responsibility to sit with what's coming up for me as someone who's not racialized as Black in this on this land. Um, how does that, how do I fully somatically sit with and then also in my design how do I help bring in that prayer for black liberation for indigenous liberation for immigrant liberation going closer towards home which ironically not surprise surprise uh didn't deal with that for a long time I was like no I'll just do the by the black indigenous kind of solidarity work and because you know, I myself am, am an immigrant and sometimes the things we take time to circle back to what's really close to us. This has been my experience, at least, because I've needed to kind of I've needed to like wind my way. Right. We don't want to just not have capacity and then just go reach in and then do more damage. Um, healing is not linear. It's very <laughs> circular and circuitous. And I'm grateful for that. And so I feel like more recently I'm getting to work with um, folks that share that, that we share that bond of not having been born on this land or brought up here and having cultures that are from outside of Turtle Island and navigating the immigration system. And so again, like, you know, um, just... What does that liberation and solidarity look like for others and for myself? And and on and on, I feel like at every at every point, it's an orientation. The way that I, the way that I experience it is, 
you know, I orient towards healing. I try to orient towards liberation to be like, yes, these are, this is what feels like it's animating me, giving me life, feels like it's aligned with my values. I have capacity for this to like titrate it to this level of, um, of practice inward, outward. And so, yep. Is it still, is my, is my North star still liberation? Does this work? Gut check. Sweet. Let's keep moving, you know, (laughs) moving forward. Um, and I think that, that, that reflexiveness, that coming back, right. That spiral learning, because obviously sometimes I'm going to get lost and then I'm going to need like somebody else being like, yeah, I know, I know you've been around this community for a while with but like that felt harmful. And that's like, wow, that's a gift to be like, oof, I can approach this. I can continue to learn and heal and grow. And, and that's, that's, that's such a blessing. It's such a blessing. Thank you for thank you for saying that and and just speaking to that. Um, yeah, I'm just a, for myself. I'm aware as a as a podcast host and as someone that's putting themselves out in a pretty public way. That this morning before this interview and and I did another interview this morning. I was feeling really nervous to talk um, about some of these topics because it's it's vulnerable and there's, I still feel like despite as much work as I've done already, there's still so, so, so much work ahead of me. And I just wanted to, since we're at the beginning of the season with this episode, you know, kind of just drop in this idea of failing forward that people talk about and just the importance of, of the vulnerability to say, you know what, we're not, we're not baked cakes. We're not perfect. Like we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna do harm. And can we continue to come back to a place of owning and taking responsibility for the harm we've created, making a meaningful apology, uh, being willing to receive feedback that says, ouch, like that didn't feel good that you did that. Or can you please try it this way in the future? And keep pushing forward and and love ourselves enough and respect ourselves enough to forgive ourselves, allow ourselves to be forgiven and and keep moving forward. And I, I truly hope that anyone listening to this podcast, including myself, <laughs> can have the grace. I pray that we all get to have the grace to, to be courageous in these efforts towards liberation and towards solidarity. And I, I'm really grateful to you for for bringing that point around here. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I would love to, um, I'd love for you to just take us out with a, with a moment of, of mindfulness to kind of bookend our time together. Thank you. Yes. (sighs) So let's, Once again, find those points of contact, the ground or the chair. Maybe our backs are resting against something. Anchoring ourselves through touch. 
allowing all that's been stirred up within us through this conversation, through whatever is happening within us, giving the tender bits within us some, some love and some gratitude for being moved, for being alive and in relationship. I'm taking a moment to soften our gaze and turn our sight inwards, insight, to bring about some awareness and attention and care for ourselves in these bodies. Inviting in some life-giving air. Thank you to the trees and all the beings that are inherently part of this air that is now part of me. Welcoming in this breath to nourish our bodies, our spirits, to flow through our lungs and animate us as we continue to just do the best we can as a practice, as a commitment. And inviting this breath to soften and loosen any parts of our body where we feel like we're holding ourselves in a particular way. Maybe from some residual fear, some expectation of perfection that we can just lovingly release little by little whatever is ready to let go of. And you're just sitting with the miracle and beauty in this moment that we're alive, we're breathing, and that we get to live into liberation. It's the gift of the present moment. Breathing in softness, breathing out liberation, breathing in forgiveness, breathing out trust, breathing in love, breathing out love. Thank you so much for love, for being love.
and for loving. Well, Rudy DeCruz, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Same. Thank you, Rebecca. I hope that you got as much out of this conversation with Rudy de Cruz as I did. You can find more information about Rudy at their website, RudyDeCruz.net, and on Instagram at Rudy de Cruz. I invite you to check out their upcoming course, Reclaiming Permaculture and Placemaking for Liberation, hosted through the Foundation for Intentional Community. And I hope you'll continue to follow along with our second season. I am so thrilled to be once again hosting these potent conversations, and I hope that you are getting a lot out of them. There are lots of ways to support the show if you are enjoying it. Of course, your donations are always welcome, but liking, subscribing, and sharing with friends and leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts really helps us to grow our reach. You can also fill out our survey at ic.org slash podcast and let us know what kind of interviews, conversations, and guests you would like to see on the show. And you can also reach out to me directly through Facebook or Instagram at Inside Community Podcast. I'd like to take a moment and give a few shout outs to some of the folks who have been absolutely integral in getting this second season of the show launched. None of this could be happening without the dedication and work and amazingly upbeat attitude of Kim Canny, one of the co-directors of the FIC. Bianca Villanova and Aaron McMichael have been rocking our fundraiser effort. Neil Planchin has been a huge supporter of the show and is a true Spider-Man, weaving webs of connection and support throughout the co-housing and intentional community spheres. And finally, my buddy Dave Buddha, who was so generous with his creative ability as to create the awesome Inside Community Ditty that you will be hearing on this show from here on out. Thanks, friends. It has been a pleasure to work with all of you. It is such an honor to continue to uncover all of the beautiful and messy realities of living inside community and to be sharing these conversations with you. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll see you next time. Who left the dishes in the shared kitchen sink? Who helps out Johnny when he's had too much to drink? How do we find a way for everyone to agree? That's inside community. It's a podcast, y'all.